This morning we're continuing our new teaching series titled One Another, looking at the various Bible verses in the New Testament that talk about the way we as followers of Christ, we as believers in Jesus are supposed to relate to one another. And, and while it's built on the foundation of love, as we talked about last week, because we're, we're all children of God who, who know, know Christ, those verses tend to focus on the practical application of what it means to love one another. In terms of how do you talk to one another, how do you treat one another, how do you think about one another, how do you deal with one another in the various uh, circumstances of life. And last Sunday we talked about love being the foundation and two of the practical things we do to express love to one another is, well, we connect with one another, we get to know one another. And that's why it's important, as particularly as the verse said last Sunday, that you meet new Christians. That when you settle into your group and you don't go out of your way to intentionally connect with other believers, with people you don't know already who love Christ, then you're not really expressing Christian love. You've become a clique. And that's not what Christian love does for one another. So you need to be meeting new Christians all the time. And that we also use whatever skills and talents we have to serve one another. Well, this morning we're going to look at a, a passage in the book of Ephesians. And I invite you to open your Bible to that book, the book of Ephesians. And we're going to learn that, that we're families. We're brothers and sisters in Christ. And because we are relatives, so to speak, blood relatives, think about that. Because we are forgiven through the shed blood of Jesus Christ, we really are blood relatives, blood brothers and sisters in Christ. Therefore, we're to treat each other the right way so the family can remain intact, the family can be healthy, and the family can be happy, and we can be spiritually well off. And one of the analogies the Bible uses to describe the people of God, the church, is a body, a family, and to help you just kind of wrap your mind around that a minute, this is, this is the book that I've been using since October 1, 1977, when I officiated at the very first wedding that I ever officiated. And this is the book I've used since then, since 1977. And the names of every couple for whom I've uh, officiated their wedding are written in this book. The day, the time, the location, their names. They're all in here. And uh, couples will stand before me, before their family, and in the presence of God and and um, I'll, I'll ask the man, do you take her to be your wedded wife, to have and to hold from this day forward, for better or for worse? Those are the vows. You're familiar with that, right? The vows that people repeat. At the beginning of the ceremony, I'll often say, do you take, do you take this man, do you take this woman to be your lawfully wedded wife? And do you solemnly promise before God and these witnesses that you will love, honor, and cherish her and forsaking all others for her alone? Perform unto her all the duties that a husband owes to his wife until God by death shall separate you. Now think about that. Love. You're promising before God to love, to honor. You're promising before God to cherish. You're promising before God to do all the duties, fulfill all the requirements, all the expectations, all the duties that a husband owes to his wife, a wife owes to her husband until God by death separates you. And every couple stands in front of me at these weddings. And they smile, some shed tears, and they say, I will, I do. Yes, they repeat those vows, and there's love, and in their heart they have these dreams, and they all want to see it become reality. But the reality is 
many of them fail. Is that not true? All the joy, all the aspirations of a family at some point in the future often is shattered. There's a a graph on the screen I want you to look at. You may not be able to make all that out, but what it looks at is the number of children in the United States who live in various type homes. The top line, and, and, and the first column is 1960. The second column is 1980. The third column is 2013. And what it shows is that in 1960, look at that, 73% of American children lived in a home with their parents who were married to each other, and it was the first marriage. In other words, they were still living with their biological mother and father who were still married to one another. In 1960, that was 73% of the kids in this country. Today, that is 46%. Less than half the kids in this country. The bottom bar that has grown the most are the number of kids who are living in single-parent homes. In 1960, 9% of the children in this country lived in single-parent homes. Today, today, 34%. One out of every three children in America today live in a single-parent home. Now, I don't have time to address all those issues, but that illustrates the fact that here's all these people over all these years who stand before their family, before each other, holding hands, and before God, and they say, we're going to have a happy family, and yet so many of them end up having anything but... Now, here's the kicker. Marriage is no more difficult today than it was in 1960. People who say it's more difficult today than in the past, that's a cop-out. Marriage is no more difficult today than it was in 1960. What's changed is levels of commitment to work through issues. What's changed is the focus of what the purpose of marriage is. And too often in our modern culture, it's about me and what I feel and what I get out of stuff. And, 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 and it's not about sacrifice and it's not about love. And therefore, we struggle today to know how to love in the family. We struggle today to learn how to forgive in the family. We struggle today to learn how to work through issues and anger and not allow resentments to build up in the family. We, we struggle in how to be family, how to be in community, how to be in relationships today because our modern culture is focused on self too much. Now I'm not saying self doesn't matter. It does. But when self matters too much, do you know what that is? Selfishness. And selfishness destroys relationships. Well, brothers and sisters, listen to me. Same thing happens in the church. Same thing happens in Sunday school classes. Same thing happens between fellow believers, relationships between Christians, because too often, too often the world is salt in us rather than us being salt in the culture. It's rubbing off on us more than we're rubbing off on it. It's, it's, it's really tragic and funny at the same time. In Jerusalem, 
For some Christians, one of the most holy sites is the, the church of the Holy Sepulcher, which is built over the cave that some believe is the location of Jesus' burial, the, the tomb where he was buried following the crucifixion for those three days prior to his resurrection. I don't know if it was or not. Nobody can prove it one way or the other. A lot of people believe it is, and it's that church that's built over it. What you may not know is, is that there are six different Christian groups who have jurisdiction over that facility. And for centuries, it's been divided up among those six groups as to which one has responsibility for this area and can enter that area and can't enter another area. It was negotiated centuries ago during the Ottoman Empire. And in the centuries since, there's sometimes been tension and conflict, and occasionally it's broken out into into, uh, fisticuffs. For instance, one of the disputed areas in the the church of the Holy Sepulchre is the roof. Who has jurisdiction over the roof? Now think about this. There's There's been a dispute for centuries about that. The Ethiopian monks had control of it until... The 1800s, when uh, when uh, some sickness and disease decimated them, and then the uh, the Coptic monks took over. Then in 1970, the Ethiopian monks got control again because during Easter prayers, the Coptic monks left for just a moment, and it's kind of like squatters' right. And when those Coptic monks left, the Ethiopian r- monks rushed in and sat there on the roof and, and claimed it as their territory. And ever since then, a Coptic monk has sat over in the corner in a chair just waiting for the moment when those, when those Ethiopian monks leave and he can run over and claim it for the Coptic monks a few years ago. This is true, okay? This is in this, this, is in this millennium, okay? Since 2000. On one hot day, that Coptic monk took his chair and he moved it from the corner into a shady spot. They came to blows. There's video of these monks fighting one another. About 11 of them went to the hospital. A couple of them were arrested by the Israeli police. One had a broken arm and one ended up unconscious. Throwing rocks and chairs and pieces of steel. Now this is over the whole, that that church supposedly built over the place where Jesus was buried after the crucifixion. Now, Isn't that silly? Isn't that sad? But brothers and sisters, the way some of God's people act in church toward other believers is the same thing. Just as silly. And just as sad. And just as damaging to the cause of Christ. And so I want us to look at what God says about it in the book of Ephesians, chapter 4. And I I, I covet your prayers. Sounds like I'm, is my voice sound a little weak to y'all? Sounds a little weird to me. Does it sound a little weird to you all? Something's going on. So I'll just preach and y'all pray and whatever happens is what happens. Ephesians chapter 4, would you stand with me as we read together in honor of God's holy word, beginning at verse 25. I want us to read through verse 32. Ephesians 4 verse 25. The Bible says, therefore, laying aside falsehood, speak truth, each one of you, with his neighbor, 
By the way, with there is a particular Greek preposition that has the idea of those that you are in the midst of, those that you abide with, those that you are a part of, i.e., when you looked around the room last Sunday and you look around the room today, that's who it's talking about. For we are members of what? One another. Family. He says in verse 26, be angry and yet do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger. And do not give the devil an opportunity. Notice there's a pattern in these verses of don't do this or stop doing this. And instead do do that. And here's the reason. Here's the reason. So don't sin in your anger. Don't let the sun go down on it. Deal with it. And don't give the devil opportunity. That's, that's the motivation. That's the, that's the reason you need to pay attention to that is you'll give the devil a place in your life. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer, but rather he must labor, must work. And literally it means to work to the point of getting tired. Performing with his own hands what is good so that he will have something to share with one who has need. Let no unwholesome word proceed from your mouth, but only such a word as is good for edification, for building up according to the need of the moment, so that it will give grace, minister grace to those who hear. And isn't it interesting that in the midst of all that is that verse we often quote out of context about grieving the Holy Spirit, breaking the heart of God, the Holy Spirit, by how we treat one another. And so he says in verse 31, let bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander, gossip be put away from you along with all malice and then here's key verse verse 32 and be kind to one another tender-hearted forgiving each other why because god in christ has also forgiven you thank you and you can be seated now real quickly i want to walk through these verses and show you six things about how we're supposed to treat one another because we're a family so that we don't act like those uh monks in jerusalem okay because god doesn't want any of us acting like that so here's here's what god says we need to stop doing start doing and why we need to do it number one are you ready because we're members of one another we're part of the family he says be honest and have integrity verse 25 be honest and have integrity he said you know lay aside falsehood it's it's an aorist participle in the greek language which means stop it once and for all In other words, make up your mind that you're not going to be a dishonest person, a deceitful person, a manipulative person. Make up your mind once and for all as someone he describes earlier in that chapter who's moved from darkness to light and is in Christ and has taken off the old clothing and put on the new, that you have settled the issue, that you're a part of the family of God, and as such, you're not going to be a dishonest person in your relationships with God's people. Now, you can apply everything he says here to the family. And let me tell you, if husbands and wives would learn to practice what we're talking about this morning about Christian relationships, if they'd learn to practice these things at home, a lot of these divorces would never take place. So he says, learn to be honest. You know, lying can take a lot of different forms. Exaggeration. Omitting context, omitting certain facts, telling the story in such a way to mislead or 
to get what you want out of it. So you, you kind of distort the story a little bit to get your way. Isn't that dishonesty? And what does it do? It destroys trust. When you lie to your spouse, what does it do? <laughs> destroys trust. When you lie to fellow believers, you manipulate things with fellow believers, what does it do? It, it, it hurts trust. And it causes people to, to come apart, to separate. And so he says, the cure, the fix, is to be honest. Look at verse 20. Lay aside falsehood. Instead, speak the truth. Be honest. Now, that doesn't mean be a, you know, like a, a sledgehammer, you know, in a, in a store selling crystal. But it means you're not a lying person. You're not a deceitful person. You're not a manipulative person person you speak the truth why because we're members of one another and 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 he uses the the body analogy so take your body you have hands eyes feet different organs your body and what he the point he's making is that when you lie you're actually doing it to yourself because you're part of this body and when you hurt the others you're hurting yourself because you're hurting your own body and the truth is when you're this kind of person not only do you hurt another person not only do you hurt yourself but you hurt the church for which jesus died the very bride of christ and so it says don't be that kind of person number two deal with your anger in the right way verse 26 he said be angry and yet do not sin do not let sun go the sun go down on your anger now some people think if you're a christian you never get mad the bible talks about god's wrath jesus got angry a time or two in the new testament didn't he there is a thing called righteous anger and the truth is, even beyond righteous anger, we're all going to get angry sometimes, and it's not going to be for righteous reasons, right? I mean, if you're a human being, you're going to get mad. It's just part of being imperfect, being sinful. We're going to be angry. And it doesn't help to pretend that it never happens or to pretend that you never get angry or that godly people never get angry. We get angry with our family. We get angry with each other. We get angry with the church. It happens. Sometimes it's justified, but the truth is most of our anger is not justified. Can we agree on that? Sometimes it's justified, but more often than not, it's not justified. It's not righteous anger. Most of our anger is motivated by hurt feelings, wounded pride, self-image, is, self-image issues, how I feel about myself and therefore how that makes me feel, personal wants and desires and preferences. Most of our anger is not righteous anger. But whatever the reason for being angry, righteous, unrighteous, whatever the reason, good or bad, when we're angry, what he says is how we handle it matters. Deal with it the right way. So he says in that verse, be angry and do what? Don't sin in your anger. Because anger is an emotion and it causes us to say things and think things and do things and act a certain way. And and that's the sin. So when you're dealing with your anger, it is critical that we learn to deal with it the right way and don't sin and make matters worse. 
See, when you're angry, sometimes we'll lie, correct? Well, sometimes we'll manipulate. When we're, we're angry, some, some people are passive-aggressive. You won't ever know they're mad until they've stabbed you in the back. Till they've undermined you. Till they've manipulated. You know, they're passive-aggressive in their approach to dealing with anger. That's probably one of the more common approaches today. Is passive-aggressiveness. Others are, you know, they're, they're front-on-attack soldiers. Sometimes we express anger in gossip. We express anger by ignoring someone, avoiding people, by not talking with a person. We express anger by running away and hiding. And what he says is, you've got to deal with it the right way. And that means you've got to deal with it quickly. He says, don't let the sun go down on it. Is that not what he says? That's, that's just a, a picturesque way of saying you can't let it fester. You can't let it stay there and get bigger. You've got to deal with it while it's small and while it's new before it does the damage that it's going to do left unchecked. Because if you don't deal with it, it will do great damage. It'll lead to resentment. It'll lead to hurtful decisions. So don't hold on to it. He says, and the reason, the reason you got to go and deal with it, you got you to talk to the person, the reason you have to fix it is because if you don't, in verse 20, 27, he says you're giving the devil, you're giving Satan an opportunity in your life, and that Greek word opportunity literally means a place. Some Bibles translated a foothold. In other words, you're giving him a dedicated place in your life from which to operate, from which to work. And let me ask you this question. Do you think Satan ever wants to do anything good in your life? So why would you give him a place from which he can work in your life? Because every time you handle anger the wrong way, that is exactly what you're doing. You're giving room for Satan to come into your life and say, I'm going to take charge. And every time that happens, you sin. And it's easy to understand what that does to Christian relationships, to fellowship, to churches and Sunday school classes and to families and immediate families and extended families, isn't it? So he says, deal with the anger the right, the right way. If you have a problem with somebody, go deal with it. Don't let it fester. Number three, make an honest living so you can be a generous person. Make an honest living so you can be a generous person. Verse 28, he who steals must steal no longer. Now remember, when they're writing this, practically everybody in that church was a new Christian. They were coming from their old worldly lifestyles. And he says, you've taken off that coat and you've put on a new. And one of the things you're to lay aside not only is lying and Uh, Another thing you're to lay aside is stealing. You're you're, you're to be honest not only in your words, but you're to be honest in how you deal with money. Honest in what you do when it comes to work. He said, don't don't steal anymore. Pretty straightforward. He said, instead, work with your own hands. Do what is good. Do good work. Do good things with your own hands. Put your effort into it. Work, work. The Bible talks about laziness in a negative way. The Bible talks about not working to take care of your family in a very negative way. God God is the one who created work. And by the way, work is not a byproduct of, of the fall in the book of Genesis. Work existed for Adam and Eve in the garden before they ever disobeyed God in sin. Sin made work harder. Sin may work not always fun. 
But work was part of the original creation. You will work in heaven. So, if you want to get ready for heaven, get off your you-know-what and go to work down here. Don't be lazy. But here's a big, big difference between those who love Jesus and our culture. And too often we buy into what the culture says more than we do what God says. In our culture, work is all about what? Accumulation. Having stuff. More stuff. More fun. More, 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 it's about me. Now, does God say, take care of your family? Yes. But notice what he says here. Work. Why? So that you can have something to give, something to help people with, to be generous. That part of the motivation for those who follow Jesus is to work so we have resources to contribute to people in need, resources to contribute to the kingdom of God and to the work and ministry of God, to be generous. If you're working primarily for self and accumulation, you don't get what the Bible says about what Christians do and why we work. Do we work to have stuff? Yes, but if that's the only reason or the primary reason or that's just it, listen, there's more to it than that. It's about generosity. And so you're, you're, you're somewhere in this world, you're, you're in your Sunday school class and you become aware of a need somebody has and God may impress on your heart to open up your wallet and you're to work so you can do that. You're to work so you can give. That's part of the motivation. It's not just so you can have a bigger house and a better car and more boats. It's so you can be a blessing to people and a blessing to the kingdom of God as well. That's part of the motivation. All right? Number four. Take care of your Christian family. How? By using your words to encourage people instead of tear them down. Verse 29. Let no unwholesome word come out of your mouth. That word translated on the wholesome means it's, it's a word that's used for fruit or food that that is rotten. You ever opened up your refrigerator and maybe in one of those drawers where you store vegetables or meat, you know, sandwich meat and stuff, and, and you realize something's been in there longer than you thought it had been in there? And it's kind of, you know, just, you, you, you know, you... you you touch it and it just feels slimy. You know, what I'm, you know what I'm saying? That's this word. And all of a sudden you realize it, it got squishy and ruined and slimy and dirty and messy. And it made a mess on some other stuff that was kind of close by. And you had to throw it all away and then get the paper towels and whatever and clean it all out and clean it up, right? Well, sometimes our words make a rotten mess and they just spill out on other people and make their life a mess too. And God says, stop it. Don't do that. Don't let any word like that come out of your mouth. Instead, speak the kind of words that, that edify, that build up. The word means to build up, to encourage, to strengthen. That's the kind of speech we're supposed to have. And he says the reason you do it is when you talk like that to people and about people, you minister into their lives the very grace of God. Chew on that a minute. 
You minister into their lives the grace of God. Number five, be compassionate and kind. Jump down to verse 32. He said, be kind to one another and tenderhearted. The word translated tenderhearted in my Bible is a word for compassion. It comes from your heart. Now, can we be honest? A moment ago, I joked that, you know, I've been teaching Brother Steve Polk how to talk Southern. We in the South are really good at what I call fake kindness, right? You can look at somebody, you hate their guts, but you're going to fake it. You can be so mad you want to, you know what? You're going to fake it until they're out of sight. We're good at that in the South. And I'll be honest, I'd I'd rather it be the way we are here than the way it is in some other places where they'll take your head off and not give a second thought to it. So I, I like our kindness. I like that, okay? But what God is saying is your kindness is to be more than just a social norm. It's to come from the heart. That's the reason he put these two together. Be kind and tenderhearted. Be kind and compassionate. That, that our acts of kindness, they're to come from in here. And sometimes when you're frustrated with somebody, choosing to say, I'm going to love that person and show it and how I treat them will help you overcome your emotions. But you've got to deal with the heart because the heart and the attitude matter just as much in the eyes of God as, as the behavior does. And so there there are those moments we need to get with God and let him help us with our heart condition. Because it's not enough simply to do the right thing. We've got to be the right person in here. And then number six, this is the last one in terms of relationships with each other as believers so the family can be healthy, strong. We've got to learn to forgive each other. Forgiving believers. That's what he says also in verse 32. Forgive each other. Just as God in Christ also has forgiven you. Forgive each other. Do you know what holding on to grudges, you know, being angry and letting it fester instead of dealing with it, do you know what holding on to all that stuff does? Causes us to be unkind. Causes us to say things that tear people down. Holding on to, you know, grudges, not forgiving people will cause us to sometimes lie, tell a little white lie, misrepresent the truth just a little bit, twist the story to suit our own purposes, to manipulate. Not, Not forgiving someone causes us to become bitter. And anger to build up and be stronger. And, and it gives Satan a place in our, in our life. In other words, not forgiving lets Satan win in your life. You've got a grudge you've been holding on towards someone. Satan is winning in your life. You, you, you've, you've been bitter towards somebody for a decade, for 20 years, for five years. Satan's winning. You've given him that foothold. He's operating. He's working. He's attacking. And he's winning in your life. And we become so familiar with his winning and our spiritually losing, we think we're doing okay. It 
It hurts us. It hurts them. It hurts the church. It hurts your Sunday school class. It hurts your family. Defeats us spiritually. Weakens us. Weakens the church. And he says we need to learn how to forgive people. Why? Because that's exactly what Jesus did for you. You see, the truth is, that moment you prayed and said, Jesus, I accept you as my Lord and Savior. I repent of my sin. I ask you to forgive me. And I accept your gift of eternal life. In that moment, when you gave your life to Jesus and became a Christian, in that moment, you were spiritually born into the family of God. And became a brother and sister to every other person who's been spiritually born into the family of God through Jesus Christ. The very forgiveness that makes you a Christian is the basis for God saying, now turn around and treat your family members like I treated you. Is that always easy? No. Let me ask you. Do you think it was completely easy for Jesus to climb on that cross? Hmm. You remember that scene in the Garden of Gethsemane the night Jesus was arrested? He's on his knees praying in anguish, the Bible says. That's the word, in anguish, in turmoil, because he knew what was getting ready to happen. And his sweat dropped to the ground like drops of blood. You remember that scene in the Gospels? And Jesus prayed, and part of his prayer was, if it be possible, let this cup what? What, church? What? Pass from me. He didn't want to go to that cross. Don't ever say that it was automatically easy for Jesus to become sin for us on that cross. It was the hardest thing he ever did. But look at the grace that it brought into our lives. Aren't you thankful for what he did? He says, now my kids, my children, learn to do likewise. Learn to do likewise. For one another. Let's stand.